having a really detailed budget helps, even if it's a monthly budget. So you can keep track of your expenses and see how they evolve over time. Because the problem about inflation is that you don't really know how much groceries are going to go up relative to your healthcare services, et cetera. But if you have a budget and you keep track of those, you can adjust. Let's get ready to scale. Hey guys, thanks for joining me for yet another episode of Ready to Scale. I am Jeanette, formerly Robinson Friedrich, joining you today actually from beautiful LA. And on the show today with me is Alvaro Boitier. Alvaro is a seasoned economist. He currently is an assistant professor in economics at Babson College. Uh, his research focuses on the intersection of international finance, macroeconomics, and trade. His research projects study the aggregate implications of corporate hedging in the transmission of international shocks. Uh, he has extensive experience in teaching and working in the private and public sector, including UCLA and UTDT. He also formerly worked at Accenture and the European Central Bank. He has his PhD in economics from the University of California of Los Angeles, UCLA, right here. And ironically, I'm in California, but he's joining us from Boston today. So, Alvaro, welcome to the show. Uh, hi, Jenny. Thanks for inviting me. Really, I'm really glad we're having this talk. Uh, I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I'm in Boston, which is a new place for me. I just moved here uh, two months ago after finishing my PhD. And, UCLA. I'm pretty excited uh, about this new uh, stage in my life. <laughs> well, congratulations. It's certainly not, um, you know, something that's easy to do, and it's definitely an accomplishment. How do you like Boston? It's pretty good. The weather hasn't been uh, so bad, which was, uh, I was worried about the cold, but right, right now I'm fine. But a few <laughs> jackets. I guess I'm excited for uh, skiing in winter at some point, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I definitely recommend uh, layers. When I moved there, I learned that lesson very quickly. Um, layers is definitely the key to survival in Boston. And good socks, actually. Make sure you have really good socks. Yeah, I need better socks and shoes, too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Well, Alvaro, I'm excited to have you on the show today, and I really appreciate you uh, coming on to share your expertise. I find macroeconomics fascinating, but obviously my uh, knowledge is and exposure to it that I would know is really very limited. So I'd love to hear your expert opinion about what you think about the overall health of the economy. How would you define our overall health right now? Yeah, so there's a few things that I have to take into account. Um, I think uh, economic growth has been uh, pretty good. So if you see typical, uh, talk, I, I tell my students that we define GDP, basically it says uh, how much goods we produce in the economy. And that number is, is pretty good. So the economy is overall growing you know, in a situation where people thought that uh, it might not happen. The main concern is that we have a lot of inflation. So still, we're still tackling inflation. And the typical remedy uh, to tackle inflation is to get the economy into a small recession to avoid these negative consequences of inflation. Uh, so basically what you do is you increase interest rates, you make borrowing more expensive so that firms, households, and different ages in the economy find it very hard to borrow. 
So try to reduce expenditures and at some point tackle inflation. So what I think is that the Fed is doing a, a really good job in combating inflation. Uh, if you think about inflation numbers last year, they were pretty high. They were about 7 8%, and now we're about 3.5%. So at least half of the job was done. The problem now is that the Fed faces a problem, which is they don't want to keep uh, pushing the economy into a recession. So what they did is they, they stopped increasing heights. They, 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 uh, they halted, say, the, the increases. Now, apparently, seems, for me, it seems a good idea because it's letting the market see uh, if inflation is going to rebound or see what happens. So inflation is still going down at a slower pace. So that's why the positive thing is a good idea. Yeah, well, that was a very good kind of recap or summary of, of exactly where we're at. Now, I'm curious with your expert opinion, is there anything that you would do differently than what the Fed is doing? Right. So I was watching the uh, FOMC. So if anybody interested in learning about monetary policy, I recommend watching the, the meetings. Uh, the first part is just a summary of what the economy looks like by the done by the chair. But basically, there were a, a couple of questions regarding the especially problems in uh, Eastern Europe and uh, Middle East regarding oil prices, which is kind of my, my concern. I think that overall, uh, the Fed did a good job in tackling inflation in the past uh, year, but we might see some issues regarding oil prices in the future, at least in my opinion. Uh, there's a big political issue uh, in, in the world that at some point might generate problems with oil prices, like the oil prices to go up, that eventually is going to might increase inflation in the US and then maybe the Fed should step in again. So that's some concern I have. But overall, I think the Fed, what basically said is they're going to be watching very closely oil prices and all this events in the Middle East to see if they need to act or not. Uh, something interesting that the Fed, uh, Mr. Powell said was that uh, the Fed thought that um, there's, let's say, half uh, chances that they might overreact and half chances that they might underreact. So now it's balanced. That's why not doing anything right now is the best option because you can mess it up by doing too much or very or too little. So I think the pause uh, uh, seems reasonable. You know, it's interesting that you bring up um, oil gas prices or oil prices because I, you know, this is not something that I typically follow, but I did I just happen to notice the other day when I was watching the news, uh, I was surprised to see gas was actually, or oil was under a hundred dollars a barrel, um, particularly since I'm in California right now. And I just saw gas at around $6 a gallon, which is crazy to me. You know, typically I would expect that if, you know, if, if I believe if, if and correct me if I'm wrong, that the higher the price of, you know, the oil is per uh, barrel, then typically the more expensive it is at the pump. Is that right? Or is it in, inadvertent? Yeah, yeah, that's perfectly right. Yeah, uh, so I was surprised. Prices go up. And also you would think that all, all the raw materials go just like a super cycle of raw materials. So people look at all the prices, but you can look at iron, you can look at copper, they all more or less move in the same directions. So uh, people have in mind oil prices, but typically the problem is going to be raw materials in general. When those prices go up, then at some point we, we might see a little bit of inflation coming back. Interesting, interesting. And I think, I, I don't know if it was the exact number, but I think the oil was basically $78 a barrel. And I thought that was pretty low, um, but I haven't, like I said, been following that. So is that actually an increase in the current cost of oil or is that a decrease? So right now, this, it's going down a little bit. 
But my concern is that I don't know if the price adjusted completely based on what's happening in the Middle East. Uh, at some point, maybe this political issue could spread out to other countries as well, oil producers in particular. So then the whole uh, scenario might change, and then eventually we might see oil prices increasing. So that's the main concern. We don't really know what this political issue could bring in. Interesting. Well, and since, you know, since we're touching on the Middle East, um, you know, obviously this is something that's really on the mind of a lot of people. And I think that sometimes we fail to recognize that, you know, uh, basically geopolitics can play a very substantial role in our day-to-day -day lives here in the United States, especially when it comes to our economy. So my understanding is generally uh, potentially war can be a, a stimulant to an economy and actually quote good for an economy, but of course it's a horrible thing. And so I'm curious what your opinion is about, you know, if the United States was to potentially actually get involved in a war in the Middle East, you know, what could that, what could those impacts be for the U.S. economy here at home? Yeah, so I would be cautious to uh, put it the way you said it, uh, because it's really, it's really a complicated issue. Uh, typically, the textbook sort of result would say if the government steps in and spends more money, that boosts the economy because it makes the keep the roll uh, the ball rolling to increase uh, demand for goods, and then eventually you produce more. The problem with wars is that at some point, especially if you end up having a, a really heavy problem in the Middle East, has to do with the supply of oil. So at some point, wars are a complicated issue. It might benefit uh, GDP a bit because you're spending goods and resources, but I will also be cautious because there's a lot of negative consequences out there uh, relative to basically uh, move around resources that it will be using for other productive uses. It's like, I don't know, you have to move resources from uh, sectors that actually contribute to the economy a lot, that maybe tech or healthcare, et cetera, you're moving it to, uh, let's say, war uses. So that's a trade-off that you have to take, take, into, take into account. Uh, I would, uh, let's say, not recommend the U.S. getting into big issues. It's usually, that's, I, I, I'd say the negative consequences, typically, in my opinion, are far worse than the, the benefits. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I certainly, at least from a humanitarian standpoint, certainly agree. Um, and I would assume that you're right also when it comes to innovation in in, in other focused areas, right, yeah. like healthcare, IT, absolutely. Um, I think it's just something that people are, you know, very nervous about. Um, it's not been, you know, the easiest ride for all of us to uh, put up with what the Fed has had to do. Uh, for pretty much most of this year, and you know, it's 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 been a little a little bit difficult. A lot of people have felt the pinch uh, per se from you know the increase in, in inflation and definitely from the increase in interest rates. Um, you know, one of the the things I've heard kicked around too is this term of a recession that the impacts are really felt more uh, potentially, according to this theory. Uh, by those that are actually wealthier, because, you know, they typically would be the ones that would be more inclined to be uh, uh, heavily reliant on financing, uh, actively, you know, taking out loans for whether it's businesses or properties or whatever it may be. So I'm just curious, um, you know, based upon your perspective as an economist, you know, in comparison to kind of the pinch that people are feeling with their personal finances, what is some advice you would give people? 
Right. So I would say that inflation typically uh, affects poor households more. Uh, that's what economists kind of agree on. Rich households typically they have more a better access to financial instruments to hedge against inflation. Uh, typically, poor households they rely just on their income, and that's really uh, aggressively kind of like attacked by inflation. So I guess in a way, the Fed being really active to control inflation is is a good thing because it's going to protect uh, American incomes for the future, right? In the short run, as Mr. Powell said, we might face some negative consequences, but it's something that we need to deal with in order to tackle inflation. And I guess uh, in terms of personal finances, I'm kind of a fan of a lot of, uh, let's say, interesting books and theories. I would say that having a really detailed budget helps, even if it's a monthly budget, so you can keep track of your expenses and see how they evolve over time because the problem about inflation is that you don't really know how much groceries are going to go up relative to your health care services etc but if you have a budget and you keep track of those you can adjust so sometimes maybe groceries go up by more than health care services so you, you should be able to adjust and try to uh, uh, be able to, to spend all the money you want to and of course typically in uh, situations where there's a lot of inflation uh, sometimes you need to postpone a bit uh, luxury expenditures you wanted to do to be a bit more cautious, just in case there's a big surge in uh, an item that you didn't uh, think about what's going to happen and eventually you need to cover that. Or you have an accident or you have a, an emergency you know, with your car or healthcare emergency and you need to uh, start spending more money. So having a budget and be a little bit frugal in the situations could be better, at least for for some time, not forever, but until this kind of high inflation scheme is uh, controlled. And in your opinion, how long do you think that that might take? So what the what's interesting about the Fed is that they uh, they have a report basically, in relative to what uh, members of the committee think. What apparently is what we see in that report is basically this, they're seeing they're thinking that over the next year we're still going to have some interest hikes so the kind of the battle uh relative to inflation is not really finished yet so we might see in the next year maybe one or two more hikes so eventually what the report is saying that maybe in 2025 we're going to start seeing a slow decline in interest rates meaning that at least this battle uh, inflation battle is going to be over so at least i will say a year a year and a half something like that so it's uh it's going to be of rough situation i don't think it's going to get i guess worse than what is now so we're kind of at the peak of the bad situation because rates are already uh high and they're kind of causing some damage to the economy but overall when economic when the inflation gets tackled eventually we're going to start lowering rates all right well good i appreciate your insight on that um now the, you know, you touched on, you, you enjoy some theories and different books that you've read out there. And one of them that I read that I thought was pretty mind-blowing was a book called The Deficit Myth. And so I'd like to kind of get your opinion about that right after a word from our sponsor. Ready to Scale is brought to you by Blue Lake Capital, where we hunt down the best multifamily investment opportunities that we can find and invite investors to join in with us. We target Class B value-add multifamily properties across the Sun Belt. Our CEO, Ellie Perlman, invests a substantial amount of capital into every deal. 
This means our interests are aligned with yours. If you're an accredited investor looking to expand your portfolio and diversify sponsors, be sure to visit us at bluelake-capital.com. Blue Lake Capital, be bold, be extraordinary, and keep moving forward. So Alvaro, I read this book uh, a few years ago, actually, and I found it to be pretty revolutionary at the time because it was just such a different way for me to ever view or think about, um, you know, basically money, frankly, in the United States and the idea of us constantly having this huge, enormous deficit. And basically the, the book, you know, almost made light of it as a joke because it was talking about the fact that essentially we are the ones that make the money that put us into the debt that we are, you know, supposedly in. And this whole deficit has been created by us and therefore can easily be corrected by us. So I'm curious, what is your opinion about this deficit myth? And are you familiar with this? Like, have you ever heard about this before? Uh, so I haven't heard about the book, but Ooh. I think what, what it says kind of makes sense. So I'm a microeconomist, and typically what we do is we saw what individual agents do. So what families, firms, they all do, we group it together. And typically, if you think about uh, American households, in general, they have a lot of debt. So when you group all debt, at some point, you're going to have that the economy role has debt. So I'm, in a way, uh, more in a, let's say, recommendation regarding more being more frugal, because in a way, uh, being more frugal will also help individual finalists in a way try to tackle that. That is a tool that it could be used to generate wealth, but you have to be cautious with it because eventually you have to repay back. So there's, okay, there's a benefit, but also there's a cost. The cost typically uh, in some situations could be very hard for anybody. Um, so I don't know, that's my, that's my impression. And regarding the, the deficit also, yeah, it's a... Repaying back debt is that's that's the hard part. Like you kind of like feel happy when you use debt to uh, buy things, but then eventually have to pay back. Uh, and I come from a country, Argentina, where typically uh, the government has a lot of debt, so that's also very problematic. At some point, you have to pay back, so there's no way to escape. There's no, there's no way around it. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, I'm, I'm happy that I got to uh, mention a book to you that you hadn't heard. So I'll have to, uh, to send a copy over to you because I thought it was pretty cool. Um, now, you know, talking about kind of just different theories and perspectives. And uh, one of the things that I definitely would also be interested to know from you, and I'm sure our listeners would too, is what do you think are some of the most critical basically macroeconomic factors right now that people are either oblivious to, um, you know, that you do think should be very important and people tend to overlook them or that people just don't understand. Right. So one thing that's, uh, I think it's important has to do with, uh, kind of the, the negative consequences of inflation. I think people in a, in a sense, they understand that they're going to spend more on groceries on healthcare, et cetera. What they don't understand is how the future looks like. Typically, when you have some periods with having with high inflation, all goods and services are going to be adjusted, meaning that people are going to try to expect that prices are going to go up over time and over time and over time. That's going to be very problematic for, let's say, central banks to control inflation, not just today, but in the future. So this is what, I don't know, if 
some people are familiar about this, has to do with expectations. The Fed has to really tackle future inflation by controlling expectations. Because if not, you just end up in a massive loop where inflation generates more inflation and more inflation and more inflation. By tackling expectations and controlling expectations, typically the term is anchoring expectations. So making sure that people have in mind in their minds that future inflation is going to be 2%, like what the Fed wants to do. So they can attack current inflation. I think one concern that uh, people might not understand, uh, it's why the Fed is so aggressive uh, in terms of combating inflation. Because the, the enemy, let's say, is not just current inflation, but future inflation as well. Because if inflation in the short run becomes, uh, it's, people call it unravels, so maybe grows fast in, in the short run, that will generate more inflation over time. Because people are going to start, uh, or firms, let's uh, say it's different, different prices in the economy are going to start rising. But then because they rise, everybody's going to start rising prices. There's a inflationary spiral, they call it, where more inflation generates more inflation. So that's why the Fed has to be very aggressive to um, kind of like tackle future inflation. What typically the term is, you want, to want, you want to anchor expectations, meaning you want to make sure that households and firms know that inflation in the future is going to be 2%. So the rate, the, the target of the Fed is. But in order to make sure that everybody's on the same page, we need to be very aggressive with interest rates right now so that the future looks bright. And I guess people don't understand that. Maybe they're uh, worried about, oh, these rates are really high. But that's the, that's the kind of the issue. You need to be very aggressive to control future inflation. Yeah. And I can put an example in, uh, in Argentina, something that uh, typically is not done properly. So I guess inflation just keeps going up and up and down. And typically, I don't know, the last year we had 6% inflation per month, which accounts for 120, 130 per year, which is crazy. That's basically inflation letting go wild, not being aggressive enough in the beginning, and then inflation just arouse. Yeah, very good point. And I'm glad that you're pointing it out. I have heard some people, um, you know, think that the solution to that is simply um, you know, um, increasing uh, people's wages. But of course, that really doesn't actually correct the issue uh, or mitigate. That's the spiral I was talking because the wages yeah. go up, prices go up, and then everything in two years, you have a 20% inflation rate. Yeah. And then how to, to deal with 20% inflation rate, you need even higher uh, rates. So that's going to be really problematic. So at some point, it's easier to tackle, re be really aggressive now rather than wait. Yeah, for sure. You know, um, and, and of course I'm biased because I'm in real estate, right? We're all into real estate investing here. So, you know, we talk a lot about how, you know, real estate investing is, is a great hedge against inflation. Um, but I'm curious, you know, and I think it'd probably be helpful to listeners if you explain what we mean when we're saying a hedge against inflation, how people can hedge against inflation, and what are some other things that you recommend, you know, aside of, you know, real estate, which I'm very biased with, um, that people can actually do as a hedge against this inflation? So I'm not an expert on real estate, but I think when people say it's a hedge against inflation, it's basically saying that you're going to be covered in a way. So if uh, goods and services, the price of goods and services go up, this inflation, typically you're also going to see that uh, prices of other things go up, like, for example, uh, real estate. So then your money is going to be protected in a way because it's going to go up with inflation. That's typically the idea of a, of a hedge. Um, I think overall, real estate is an interesting uh, place to, to invest 
And I'm kind of like learning a little bit the intricacies of real estate, uh, especially in, in the US, it's a good place to, to invest, I think, overall. In other countries, it's, it's really hard to find a, a home or even invest uh, as, as a company. So I think overall, uh, I'm really interested in that. Uh, and then another thing that people have in mind when they think about inflation edges is they talk about uh, gold, for example, which I don't think is necessarily a hedge against inflation. Gold, it's just a commodity that not necessarily helps uh, kind of like protecting your income with inflation. Uh, something I would kind of recommend would be to look into there's a special type of bonds called TIPS, so Treasury Inflation Protected Bonds. Just a bond that basically covers your gives you a bit more money when there's a lot of inflation. So that, that could help. And typically, also in uh, the literature, uh, we've seen that stock prices also kind of go, go up when there's a lot of inflation. Typically, with because firms can sort of adjust uh, fast to inflation, they still kind of can make a lot of money. Um, so that's the only things I will look into. All right. Well, very good. I appreciate the advice, and and I will touch on a little bit about what you said. So I. You know, my, my, what I, what I, my, uh, my meaning, what I'm intending to convey to people when I'm talking about uh, real estate investing being a hedge against inflation is essentially, you know, as inflation increases every day, your dollar is literally worth less than it was the day before and the day, you know, before that. And so, you know, typically when I'm looking at real estate investing and I, and I consider, you know, putting my money into an investment, I'm looking at it because it, it's protecting essentially the value of my dollar dwindling further and further as inflation rises, right? It kind of locks in at least, you know, a, a certain valuation or kind of range that I can bank on that, you know, my money is still going to be valued at, um, you know, by putting it into a physical asset that's not as volatile, you know, as like the stock market or the economy and and things like that. So that's typically what I mean, you know, when I'm talking about it being a hedge against inflation is, you know, it's, it's preserving capital. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's locking in at least some type of valuation for the, your dollar. Um, and it's in to a real physical asset. So just to clarify kind of, cause I do throw that out there a lot. Uh, so I want people to know, you know, what I mean when I'm saying it, uh, but it's interesting to, to talk with you about it too, and to hear your perspectives. Um, you know, you also touched on something that I would love your opinion on also, which you talked about housing. So, you know, um, we specialize in, in multifamily real estate. So, you know, big apartment complexes. And, um, you know, it's really interesting because I, I definitely see us as increasingly becoming a nation of renters. Uh, home ownership is just out of reach for so many people, or even if it's within reach, it's not, it's not very appealing to them. It's not attractive to them, especially, you know, with interest rates where they are right now. Um, you know, how do you think any type of solution or middle ground can ever be created for, you know, this massive gap that we have with affordable housing, or even those that are maybe even upper income and wouldn't even qualify for affordable housing per se, but are still priced out of the market? Yeah, that's true. It's a big, big concern. Um, I think I don't have a definitive answer because I know that it's going it, to, over, let's say, the past 40 years, home prices grew up a lot, but income didn't match. So if you look at uh, what was the average or median income in the 80s versus the average uh, home price, uh, if you compare it to now, you, you think that it's, gonna be, it's really complicated now to be a homeowner. Uh, so I guess, I don't know, my advice would be to take things easily, uh, uh, slowly, in the sense that 
uh, home ownership is not a race. I think that people maybe have that in mind that, I don't know, they're 25 or 30 or whatever age they are and they need to buy a house. Renting gives you flexibility. So you can also start working on your company, build your a car career. Renting gives you that flexibility because if you buy a house and eventually you're stuck to either that physical place and to that physical asset. With renting, you could be more flexible. You can also take uh, career uh, uh, changes, for example. You can move states where if it's like a property is going to be complicated. So renting for a couple of years more, I don't think it's a big issue. Maybe people should be a bit more patient, build up the capital, and then eventually uh, buy something that first they could afford and they like in a city where they might see their self, their, their, themselves uh, for a long time. So I, I guess that would be my advice. Okay. All right. Well, very interesting. And I actually appreciate your, your sentiment for renting because uh, I've, I've said the same thing for years. Uh, you know, there's a lot of benefits to renting and, and there really is a whole generation of people out there that prefer to be renters and just don't actually want to really be homeowners or, you know, like you said, they're not in a rush to do it either. So, yeah, so I think overall uh, people don't really measure correctly the costs of being a homeowner which might be high. It's not that, okay, you pay the mortgage and they say, no, you have to be you have to be saving money for in case you need to repair the roof or something like that. So those costs should also be taken into account. And rent, with renting, you don't have those costs. Of course, it might be a bit more expensive, uh, but in the short run, if you can rent for a bit, accumulate your capital, save up, then eventually you, 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 in the long run, you'll be better, better off. I guess that's my point. Yeah, no, it's good advice, yeah. Um, all right. Now, before we jump into the lightning round questions, I do want to just give you an opportunity to speak to anything that you may be, you know, extra passionate about. Um, so, you know, what what is it about economics that you love so much and why did you decide to focus your career on it? Right. So uh, what I said, I come from Argentina, which is a very messy uh, country. And I guess, I don't know, when I was 12, the country went through a massive recession. I didn't understand what was going on. I read the newspapers. I was sort of like trying to understand why we were so bad at it. And at some point I decided to study uh, and then I realized, oh, this is really interesting. Uh, so I recommend people, if they wanna learn about finance economics to reach out to, I don't know, to me or any, anybody that they know that uh, studying economics, because it's a really interesting topic, uh, but it could be really complicated, really simple, really fast. So there's a lot of terms. So if you're interested, maybe you could find a, a, a niche, start studying slowly, and then eventually uh, build up your career. So I guess um, I don't know. I'm not advertising economics as a science. We need we need smart people uh, working on economics. So. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> All right. Well, very good. Uh, you know, tidbit of advice. And for anybody that you know is interested in that, I hope they follow up with you. Uh, so Alvaro, this has been fun, but we have now arrived to what I call the lightning round questions, which are five questions that I ask all the guests that we have on the show. So are you ready? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Very good. So when you're not, you know, um, studying about the economy and moving across the country, what do you actually do for fun? So I like working out. So I used to play rugby, uh, sort of competitively in Argentina. Uh, now I stop playing rugby. Uh, I do crossfit, so I like kind of intensive, uh, intense workouts. Uh, yeah, with a lot of like different movements and stuff like that. Very cool. Okay, good, good. 
And then what is something that most people don't know about you that's interesting? Uh, so I, when people ask this question, like in interviews, for example, I would say uh, like a, I can wiggle my ears. <laughs> so I don't know if you can see them. <laughs> hey, I think I can see it a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Know. Very cool. Very cool. Um, all right. Now, as far as books, I touched on one earlier, you know, that I thought was really interesting, uh, The Deficit Myth. What book would you recommend, uh, particularly our listeners who are who generally are real estate investors, what book would you recommend uh, that they should read that would be really helpful for them to understand or yeah. their understanding? Of so it's, a, it's a book I tell my students to read. It's called The Intelligent Investor. Uh, so it's a really good book. It might be a little bit hard in the beginning, but it gives you a lot of ideas in terms of investing. Um, then then I, I guess I could say another book too, which is what the 20, 20, 21st century monetary policy. That's also another interesting book that talks about the Fed and the history of why the Fed does what they do. That's also, because it, it typically in uh, real estate, you want to look at interest rate, right? So you need to know what the Fed does in terms of interest rates. Oh yeah, definitely. Interesting. Okay, good. No one's ever recommended that one before. That's definitely a first I've heard it. So good. Great advice. Now, uh, one of the things that we also talk about on the show is, you know, yes, we all want to make money. Yes, money is important, but money is not everything. And so, you know, obviously one of the goals, hopefully for most people is, you know, not only for their family and financial security, but really being able to live, you know, an extraordinary life. So what's your particular advice for people who want to build an extraordinary life? Well, that's a good one. Uh, so I would say being frugal, it's a good idea because what you're going to be doing is you're going to be basically so saving money, but also saving money means that you're going to be prioritizing things that you care about in the long run. So instead of, for example, uh, spending money on things you know the phrase that says spend money to uh, that you don't have to impress people that you don't care about. Uh, being frugal allows you to save money, but also focus your time on whatever you want to do to improve your skills and overall uh, invest that time to have the life that you want. So at some point, uh, I would say uh, I would encourage people to take a look at what they're, they're at and try to focus their time on whatever they think is going to make the best, let's say, return for the future. So even if you spend five years building your company, or in my case, doing my PhD or going to school, those things are going to be uh, going to uh, play a big role in the future. So don't worry about being, I would say, be frugal in the sense of don't spend too much money on things that you don't really care about, but uh, in order to focus your time on things that you really care about for the future. Yep. Great advice. Great advice. All right. All right. And then last but not least, Alvaro, if people want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? Yeah. So I have a personal website, which is basically my name. Uh, and there you can find my, my email. So it's going to be alvarovoitcher.com. Uh, .com, or you can Google my name. I also have uh, my Babson College uh, website. There you can see some of my research papers, my uh, teaching, the classes I, I teach, uh, and also my, my my email. So you can reach out there. Can, um, I'm happy to talk about economics. Awesome. All right. And we'll be sure to include that in the uh, show notes too. Uh, so those of you listening can, can easily find that information. 
Well, Alvaro, thank you very much. This was interesting. Uh, definitely, I know we touched on a whole bunch of different subjects all at the same time, but I really appreciate you being on the show and, and sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you're inviting me, Scott. We're very happy having this conversation. Really, really uh, relevant topics and really interesting things as well. Yeah, absolutely. And for those of you that joined us today, thank you so much for listening and tuning in. Please don't forget to like, rate, and review the show. Leave us some comments and let us know if there's anything else you'd like us to touch on. And in the meantime, be bold, be strong, and keep moving forward. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.